0: Okay, let's look at. uh, I want to complete Exodus chapter 30 with you this morning. How many want to grow spiritually, be healthy spiritually, mature spiritually? You know, we are fundamentally spiritual beings. Do you know that? We live in a temporal, seen, visible, experiential world. uh, But the reality is is that we are spiritual beings. And it's that part of us that's going to go on into eternity. Uh, These bodies are not going to last. These bodies, as many of you are aware, are deteriorating. Right, Jerry? (laughs) They slow down. Uh, And so we're going to get brand new bodies, but they're going to be... They're going to be physical, but they're going to be physical slash spiritual. We, we don't know what they're going to be like, actually. They're going to be like Jesus' body. They're going to, they're, you're going to be able to feel it, touch it, and yet it's going to be able to appear, disappear, go through walls. Isn't that cool? <laughs> but the point I want to make is that we are spiritual beings Fundamentally. And it's imperative, as such, that we grow spiritually. It's about spiritual growth. It's about spiritual maturity. And that is to be evidenced in how we work that out, how we live our lives. And in the passage uh, this morning I want to talk to you about, uh, God is going to talk to Israel about four particular dynamics that uh, focus on worship. They, they, They are involved in the tabernacle service. In one way or another and an interesting aspect of these four elements of the worship is that each one of them if they are um, disregarded if they are misused in any way there is a serious consequence attached to them unlike the other elements of the worship uh, that we've been studying with respect to the sanctuary to the tabernacle so by extension If God means for his people uh, to not suffer plague, if he means for them not to be killed, if he means for them not to be cut off, or rather, if they don't want to suffer plague, if they don't want to uh, die, if they don't want to be cut off, it's imperative, then, that they embrace these dynamics. So, by extension, we, too, we can learn lessons. And, again, these lessons uh, uh, extend to our spiritual experience our spiritual life, our spiritual growth. I hope to try to make this uh, uh, cogent and clear to you. So the question is, what makes a person spiritually healthy? What makes a person spiritually mature? And from this text that we're going to look at, there are four strong pictures that become visible to us. To be spiritually healthy, to be spiritually mature... A believer must one be a giving person. Now, very, very, very often we we hear the word giving, and we automatically in our minds translate it to money. No, it's much more than that. You we don't you don't give money, you don't give time unless that's the tenor of your life. Jesus is a giving person, right? The New Testament says we are being conformed into his image. We're being transformed from glory to glory to be more like him. And if that's true, and if it is my intention to participate in that uh, process, uh, albeit even passively as God works and changes me, then I too must be a giving person. If I'm going to grow spiritually, I must be a giving person. Secondly, secondly, I must be a, a morally, morally pure person. We read in, in uh, First Timothy uh, about the qualifications for overseer. Uh, overseer must be above reproach. That really talks about uh, moral purity. That nothing can be laid at that person's doorstep uh, that would uh, besmirch his or her reputation. This should be true of every believer. We come into the church, we get saved, we come in, we bring baggage with us. We know that God has forgiven us for all of our sins. How many say hallelujah to that? Amen. Yeah, we're forgiven, we're, we're washed clean. But we bring baggage with us, don't we? Sometimes we bring some old habits, they kind of hang on, hang on. We don't like them, and, and, and we, we do things, we say things, we act certain ways that, that uh, are not uh, appropriate or moral. And we should eschew those things. And so if I'm to grow and mature spiritually, it requires that I be uh, constantly, if you will, um, washing myself, cleansing myself, putting off these old habits. Does that make sense? Thirdly, if I am to grow and mature spiritually, and experience spiritual health, that I must be anointed by God for service. We're we'll talk about the anointing oil and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it all, it's, it's for service. It's not just, I'm anointed just to be anointed. It's for a purpose. The tabernacle will be anointed. It was anointed to make it holy so that it would be Uh, functional for the worship. Uh, The priests were to be anointed to make them holy. And fourthly, I must be a person of prayer. Those four pictures were given to the Israelites in the wilderness. And those pictures center around the tabernacle, which was, again, the center of worship. If the Israelites, indeed, were to grow in their spiritual health, if they were to grow in their spiritual maturity, was that God's intention for them? Yeah, then these four pictures had to become part of their lives. Just as the principles, the truth they represent, the truths they symbolize must become part of our lives, if indeed we're to grow spiritually. So if, you're, if your faith is stagnant, if you're not growing, and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not enthusiastically excited about being a believer and inheriting the promises of God and moving on, then you need to look at your life and say, what, what one of these four or some combination thereof may in fact be missing or I'm not emphasizing in my life. The first one has to do with uh, atonement money. Now, this is an interesting thing. The atonement money was to be a ransom paid for the lives of of every Israelite uh, 20 years older uh, who was counted when a census was taken. Indeed, the first uh, statement in the passage, uh, when you take a census. Now, there was a consequence to taking a census. The consequence was that the people would be plagued. Now, why would God plague the people? Well, probably because when you take a census, it's very easy to trust in your own power, trust in your own strength, trust in your own army. When we consider and and do a self-assessment, when you assess your own strengths and abilities and talents, you go, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And the focus shifts back to you rather than being dependent upon God. Isn't that true? So God is going to, in in effect, tax the census, tax every person to remind them that he has redeemed them. They must be dependent upon him. And it's a nominal amount. It's only half a shekel. But it's a very, very important reminder that it's all about God and his purposes and that when they do take a census, every person is to be redeemed. Otherwise, the plague will fall on them. And then the money was to be used for the tabernacle. Let's just read that section. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them. So if, if I pay the half-shekel ransom, then, then no plague will come on me. Otherwise, I'm under the, the uh, 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 threat of, of plague and, and presumably of death because it's just typical that I'm going to trust in my own strength. No plague will come on them uh, when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel. This half-shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than half a shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord making atonement for your lives. So there's a significant uh, uh, expression there in that particular section. It basically talks about being a giving person. Uh, If not, they would be cut off. Now, again, that passage begins with the question, when you take a census, why even would they take a census? Well, obviously, one reason would be to uh, prepare for war and battle. God's going to require them to take on all the people in the in that area of the world, and they're going to need to raise an army. In fact, in Numbers chapter 1, you see where they're instructed to take a census uh, and to raise an army to do battle. Now, there is, in that again, that inherent danger in doing that, and that would be that they would suffer the consequences of a plague. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, you see that very same thing. David does take a census, in the book of Chronicles, uh, it's recorded that he's incited by Satan to take the census. And as a result, God pronounces judgment. And one of the aspects of judgment would be a plague upon the people. So we see that actually played out. Again, this uh, is a very, very important aspect. It's to remind the people that they are dependent upon God they cannot take matters into their own hands. They can't depend upon their own strength. Now, note that this instruction is inserted in a unique place. It's inserted right after the instruction about the altar of incense. The altar of incense had to do with what does anybody remember from a couple weeks ago? Prayer. had to do with the prayers of the people. Prayers of the people. It represented actually two things. It represented the intercessions of Christ on behalf of his people. And then secondly, it would also represent our own prayers rising to God as the incense would rise up, the aroma of the incense. But I think there's a practical reason for inserting this instruction about this uh, ransom money right after the instruction of the uh, altar of incense. You'll notice it's right between the altar of incense and the wash basin. All of a sudden, there's this insertion, there's this instruction about this census and about this atonement money. So, I was wondering about that, and I thought, you know, there might be a practical reason. It might be somehow connected back to the altar of incense. Let me just suggest this to you. I can't be definitive about this, but let me just suggest it. We can pray and pray and pray. We can ask God for this and for that and for the other thing. And very often those prayers may not be answered. And we conjecture and we wonder why. I wonder if when asking God to give me something, if I don't get because I am not giving also. You follow? God give me, but I'm hoarding. God, so the question is, am I really a giving person? And I see this principle reflected in the scriptures. I think this passage declares a, 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 a very, very important lesson that prayer is available to us, and God will hear, and God will answer, but we also must be willing and being becoming like him in giving also. Listen to what the scriptures say. In Proverbs 11.25, a generous man will prosper. Now, why is that? Is that just coincidental? No, that's the way God has designed things. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. So if I'm saying, God, refresh me, refresh me, refresh me, can I expect him to refresh me if I'm not also willing to what? refresh others. Do you, see, do you see the connection there? The altar of incense represents prayers to God and so we're going to bring our request to God but also now there's this principle that just follows right behind it that speaks to the issue of dependence on God and also giving. In Proverbs 22.9 a generous man will himself be blessed. That's just how God designed things. If I'm not a generous person, if I'm not a giving person, if I'm not gracious, then I am not going to be blessed. I can't expect to be blessed. God, why can't I be blessed? Why don't you bless me like you bless these other people? Well, look at yourself. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Again, same principle. This is a famous passage. Almost every Christian has heard this passage, have they? Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse, says the Lord, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Most of you are aware that this is the only place in the Bible where God says, test me. Test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that you'll not have enough room for it. You won't be able to contain it. Now, do you see the principle? You give, watch what I'm going to do. You participate with me. Watch what I'll do. If I'm to grow spiritually, if I'm to mature spiritually, part of that maturity is evidenced in the fact that I'm becoming more like him. And that's evidenced by the fact that I have a, what, giving spirit. I'm not hoarding. I'm not holding on to stuff. I'm not selfish. And certainly I'm not crabby about it. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give and what? It'll be given to you. Give, and it'll be given to you. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. You see, again, the same law, the law of reciprocity that God has designed and built in to the whole spiritual realm. So if I'm to grow spiritually, I have to take this into account. Obedience in paying that tax or paying that ransom money would assure God's protection and erase any chance of judgment by plague. They would have absolute confidence that their lives had been redeemed, their lives had been saved from this plague. And the offering, you'll note also in verse 15, was to be the same whether you were rich or poor. Uh, The rich uh, couldn't buy God off, nor the poor uh, avoid paying the tax. It was the same tax half a shekel it was basically a nominal amount it wasn't extravagant the point is is everyone is equal in god's sight whether well, you're rich or poor everyone's a sinner everyone needs to be saved in the same way everyone needs to be redeemed in the same way and that's with the same amount the same half shekel pictures jesus everyone needs to be redeemed by the blood of jesus there is no other way to be redeemed Everybody, whether you're rich or poor, must be redeemed the same way. So that's the principle there. So the basic, the purpose of this offering was simply twofold. One, it had a material purpose, verse 16, to take care of the needs of the tabernacle. So they would collect all these offerings, from, from all these half-shekel offerings from all the Israelites, and all that money now would go towards uh, the provision and the care of the needs of the tabernacle. And this is very simply the responsibility of believers today to provide for the needs of the church. The church, remember, is not simply a building. the church is the people that meets in the building. So uh, we, with all the money that we collect, all the money that we give, all the money that goes to, to take care of all these needs, and uh, those of you who have been uh, had visibility of a lot of the needs that get met are just it, it is tremendous. And uh, again, I refer back to Malachi. I bring the whole tithe in the storehouse. There may be food in my house. Uh, we, we participate together in what God's doing, whether we're sending missionaries, whether we're supporting churches, whether we're uh, supporting poor people in our church, whether we're helping single mothers, uh, widows, we, the whole across the board. Uh, there's tons tons of things happening in the life of this church. And and with what attitude should we be doing all this, by the way? With a cheerful attitude. Again, a reminder of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. He said, uh, we should give not reluctantly or under compulsion. That means, I have to do this. Crab, 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 crab. (laughs) No, God loves what kind of a giver? Cheerful giver. So that however we give, our time, our energy... You know, it, it's easy when you, when you feel put upon to crab and complain. Uh, when was the last time you hung on a cross? <laughs> have, you, have you sweat blood? No, so uh, giving uh, is to be cheerfully done. It's something that we do at our inconvenience, not at our convenience. Become a giving person. It's marvelous when you, when you experience a breakthrough in this area, when you realize your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. It belongs to him. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And, 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 and you just have a breakthrough in your life. And you're free now. And it really becomes a joy to serve. So there was a, a material purpose for that offering. This, the offering also had, as we said, a spiritual purpose And it was to memorialize uh, the uh, uh, deliverance, the redemption of the offerer. It was to remind God's people that God had redeemed them. They again now were his people. They no longer were their own. They owed him everything. And by extension, beloved, when you say yes to Jesus... When you say yes to his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, being purchased by him, as Paul says, we too owe him everything. Now, we can never repay God, isn't that true? God doesn't expect us to repay him in the sense that we understand payment and so forth, because it's by grace. But there's a dynamic, very real dynamic, in the sense where we owe him everything. We owe him all that we are. All that we have, we should submit to him. Is that an easy thing to do? No, but that's part of growing, isn't it? That's part, that's part of intentional intentional growth. God's at work in me, and I am to cooperate and work with him, work out my salvation. I understand, Lord, that I owe you everything. I don't belong to myself anymore. Everything that I have, everything that I am belongs to you. I claim Nothing. Now I can say that, but to actually flesh it out is a whole other thing, but that's part of my spiritual growth. But if I don't understand that dynamic and I'm not given to that dynamic, then I'm not gonna participate in it. Does that make sense? Leastwise, that's been my experience. All of our material possessions, our hopes, our dreams, our very lives. In fact, Paul sums it up. In Romans chapter 12, when he says that we should be living, what? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. This is our spiritual service of worship. God, you are deserving that I worship you with everything that I have and everything that I am. How I conduct myself. How I use the resources you've entrusted to me. How I, how I function in the context of all my relationships. Be a living sacrifice. Be a giving person. Wouldn't it be marvelous if more and more people took on that attitude? We're more giving. We're growing in that area. How many would say they have need? They have room for growth in this area. Yeah, every hand ought to go up. <laughs> All right. Now here's the second. Here's the second of these four dynamics, and this is reflected in the wash basin, the bronze wash basin. Verse 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing." Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar. Notice where it's placed. Put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they, notice this, so that they what? Will not what? Die. Whoa. You know, if you don't wash your hands before you come to dinner, you're going to die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not... Is God serious about this instruction? Deadly serious. Deadly serious. He said this is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. The second major piece of furniture in the courtyard of the tabernacle would be the bronze wash basin. This was placed between the tabernacle and the altar of burnt offering. Before a priest could go up into the holy place, or even into the Holy of Holies, his first order of business always to offer sacrifice at the altar of burnt offering. In other words, a sacrifice had to be made, blood had to be shed to appease the righteousness and the justice of God. You could never approach. They could never go into the holy place. They could never certainly go into the holy of holies unless God's judgment, his wrath, his righteousness were appeased by a sacrifice. And when they made that sacrifice, uh, part of the blood of the animal that was sacrificed had to also be sprinkled on the basin. That was to sanctify the basin, to make the basin holy. It was set apart for God's purposes, and it was sanctified by the blood. The blood pictured what? Cleansing. Just like the blood of Jesus cleanses us, all the blood sprinkled on these various implements of worship, they were sprinkled with the blood, symbolic of cleansing. Cleansing from sin. So he'd offer the sacrifice. Now the next step, the very next step, uh, in following the path of holiness was the washbasin. If he was to enter in, he had to offer sacrifice, and then he went to the wash basin. And the sole purpose of the basin, verse 19 tells us, was for the priests to wash their hands and to wash their feet. They were to wash before they entered into the presence of God, before they entered into the tabernacle, um, even to wash before they approached the altar to make the sacrifice. The bottom line was that a man of God cannot minister with hands that have not been washed and cleansed, nor could he walk about ministering for the Lord until his feet had been cleansed. Now, again, we have been washed by the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus still cleanses us. How many know that? Aren't you glad for that? It is still cleansing. So we are not guilty before God. Even a sin you're going to commit today, Jesus died for that sin, his blood still covers over that sin. Isn't that great? So I don't beat myself up over it, but that doesn't necessarily relieve me from the responsibility to put off these things, to grow spiritually, to mature spiritually. Paul writes in Colossians, he writes in Corinthians, he writes in Thessalonians, all of his letters, he writes about these very, very same truths about put off these practices. Peter talks about wash your hands. Peter, or James says much the same thing. This idea of washing, of ridding ourselves of our fleshly ways. Psalm 26, verse 6. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord. So we come to worship. You know, even Paul talks about if you come to the altar to bring a, bring a gift, bring a sacrifice, and you know someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there and go and reconcile so that your gift will be acceptable. So we have to be people who really are, are committed to this principle of moral purity. Yes, I am forgiven, but I can't just stop there. I have to be a person who's also willing to put off these practices that are still attendant to my flesh. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Uh, I heard of a, uh, a couple who, uh, and this happens all the time in churches, who are not married and they're living together. And, uh, you know, come to church, that's no big deal. We're just living together. Everyone does it. it, it, No, 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 that ought not to be. Stop it. You want to strive for moral purity. But it happens every place. There's a pastor around that I haven't spoken to that has people in his congregation who are living together and come to church, take communion... and they're living out of wedlock committing fornication on a regular ongoing basis. Now that's just one example. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. Since we have these promises dear friends, Paul says, let us, well, notice this, purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness and reverence for God. Why? Because who do I belong to? I belong to Him. I confronted somebody not too long over one of these issues, and they said, you know, it's my life. I can do as I please. You can't tell me what to do. I said, excuse me. I'm your pastor. I'm not just some guy off the street. I've been charged with the care of your soul. You belong to Christ. You can't do whatever you want with your life. James chapter 4, verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we see this principle uh, of moral purity that's clearly to be exemplified by the priests. They were the ones who ministered directly to the Lord. Now, you and I today, uh, as members of the body of Christ, are called also priests, are we not? The New Testament describes us as priests. So the very same principles that were applied to the priests who ministered to God, we minister to God and to one another. Then we also should strive for moral purity. Leave no room for these things in our lives. Again, the warning to the priest to wash before they did minister, was stark and it was blunt. They must wash or what? Die. God is holy. And he will not allow any person to bring sin into his presence. Their very lives, beloved, depended on obedience in this matter. And all of us battle with living and cohabitating with some kind of sinful practice in our life, don't we? And, and sometimes we just kind of give in and give up to it. Say, well, I, I just can't help myself. So I'm pretty good at most of these other areas, but this one area, I just, you know. You know whether it's gossip, whether it's language, whether it's thoughts, I, I mean, they're, all, they're common to all of us. But the bottom line is, you don't give up the fight. You say, no, God, help me. Help me in this area. Give me strength to resist this and to put this off. I want to live a holy life for you. I want to grow. I want to be spiritually healthy. I don't want to just be limping along in my Christian experience. The priest simply could not afford to skip that station. The washing and then go into the tabernacle. They could not afford to forget and wash up later. I hear it all the time. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. You can't forget. Must attend to spiritual moral purity. God is very serious. About purity, he is very serious about holiness. The priest had to be washed and cleansed before approaching him, before serving him. Beloved, there were no exceptions, and you and I must say, Lord, I am committed to this. We're going to come to the Lord's table in in, in, a little bit here. We're going to remember Jesus and his complete surrender to his Father's will. Though he was tempted in all ways, he was without sin. He didn't sin. He was committed to moral purity. He's calling us to the same thing. And we have the same Holy Spirit living in us that he did. And by that same spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the body. It is possible. Now, verse 22, we, we come to the anointing oil. The anointing oil, again would symbolize the special call and appointment of God. We've been called and appointed by God. And we have an anointing. The anointing oil also symbolized the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. The spices that were used to prepare the anointing oil were expensive and they were rare. So this anointing oil was very, very special. And God makes that point. The oil oil was meant to anoint the tabernacle and all the articles in the tabernacle to symbolize that they were set apart for God, that they were holy, and they were set apart for God's use and God's use only. Worship, not common use. And the oil was to also anoint the priests, Uh, the priests were to be set apart as holy for God's service. Again, you and I, as priests, have been set apart, we've been anointed for God's service. Let me say that again. We have been set apart, we've been anointed for God's service. Now, how that service is fleshed out in your life depends upon how you have been gifted, and that gift, again, is from the Holy Spirit. So the question is, am I functioning as God has called me and appointed me to minister. It may not be in a formal sense in the local church setting. It may be in an informal sense. It may be uh, out in the world. You may be ministering in ways that no one sees but God. But you're bearing fruit. But the anointing oil speaks to that. And the importance of the oil is stressed... In verse 31 and 32, if you'll note, it was to be used as God's holy anointing oil and God's alone. It was never to be misused by pouring it on an ordinary person or an ordinary thing. It's only, only that which had been chosen and appointed by God. It was never to be misused. A person couldn't say, oh, this is, this is really neat fragrant anointing I think I'll make some for myself for personal use no, no 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 the anointing oil belonged to who to God and God alone and it was to be used for his purposes alone and the person uh, who would misuse it in any way was to be cut off now that cut off could be could refer to being excommunicated or the more severe interpretation of cutoff, because it's used this way in other places in the Old Testament, uh, he'd be killed. Severe. It's just anointing oil. What is, what's the big deal? It's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God. And the anointing that you and I have received, you can't just fluff it off. You just say, well, you know, it's no big deal. I'm, just, I'm occupied doing my, uh, my, my thing. God's called you and anointed you to do his thing. Whatever that thing is in your life. If you don't know, I would be serious about pursuing that. God, I want to know what you've called me to, what I'm to be doing, how my service, my ministry, is to be fleshed out through this life that you've given me. The anointing was not man's to give. The anointing is God's. Now, I can recruit people to do stuff, but I-, I can't anoint you to do it. Now we go through symbolic anointings, you know, we anoint for the sick and so forth. But that's not the anointing we're talking about. We're talking about a spiritual anointing. It's God who chooses. It's God who calls. It's God who appoints. It's God who gives. His Spirit. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, John reminds us that we have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, who's the Holy One? It's God. The Holy One is God. We have an anointing. Well, what's he, what exactly is the anointing? We get some more information in verse 27 of 1 John chapter 2. He says, and this anointing remains in us. Now, what is that? It's the Holy Spirit. You recall Jesus, when he's telling his disciples, recorded by John, that he's going to be going away. But he's going to not leave them as orphans. He's going to send another like himself to be not only with them, but in them. He says, the Holy Spirit, you know the Holy Spirit, he's with you now, but he will be in you. So this anointing In us, remains in us, is the Holy Spirit. And again, in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, and the Holy Spirit, who will be in you, will lead you into all truth. He will lead you into all truth. Holy Spirit, show me all truth. All truth about myself, all truth about the world, all truth about God. He will teach me. The question is, how good a student am I? (laughs) How willing am I to learn? He'll teach me. See, if I'm to experience spiritual health, spiritual well being, spiritual maturity, it requires that I be one, a, a really giving person, becoming more like Christ. It requires that I pursue moral holiness. It requires that I seek to understand and to function in the anointing from the Holy One on my life. Does that make sense to you? You say, well, what if I don't seek the anointing? What if I don't seek to find this out? That's tantamount to denying the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say about those who blaspheme him? Anybody can speak against Jesus and they will be forgiven. But you couldn't speak against, you couldn't blaspheme, you couldn't deny the Holy Spirit. That's called the unforgivable sin. Now why is that the unforgivable sin? Because the Holy Spirit is the agent of new birth. And if you hold him off, if you deny him, if you blaspheme him, if you reject him, how can you possibly be born again? You're still unforgiven. You see? And the more you do that... The more you ensure and harden yourself in that state of lostness. Lastly, we come to the incense. The instructions for the incense are given. Again, this all functions and it's all for the purpose of worship, no other purpose. The incense was to be holy, it was to be pure, verse 35. The incense was to be put in front of the Ark of the Testimony on the altar of incense that we described two weeks ago that sat right on the outside of that inner curtain. Here's the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the inside of the Holy Holies. Here's the inner curtain that separates them, behind which only the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement. And then the incense altar was right there, as close as you could get to the presence of God. This is where the incense was burned on that altar of incense. Isn't that a great picture? Did did we show you the picture of the the, the wash basin, too? Show that one. Thank Robert. He digs those out for us. Say, thank you, Robert. Robert. He's not here today, but he'll, (laughs) he'll get that. Now, the altar of incense symbolized a couple of things. One, it symbolized, as I suggested earlier, it symbolized the intercessions of Jesus, our high priest. But also, they symbolize the prayers of God's people. Prayer is very special. It's very precious to God. Because prayer is the essence of communion. It's the essence of fellowship. If you ever go to somebody's house for dinner and, and you just kind of all sit there and no one talks, No, you, 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 you're the guest, and, and the person who entertains you, uh, they invite you. You're both parties are hoping for good conversation, good, rich fellowship. Isn't that true? And you dread those awkward moments when no one knows what to say next. Anybody experience that? Yeah. You go, somebody say something. And you make up something. see, this is what prayer, prayer is the essence of communion and fellowship, and God, this is special to God, just like good fellowship, good communion, good conversation is special, we long for that. And therefore this fragrant aroma, this fragrant aroma of incense representing prayers, conversation, fellowship, would ascend up right next to the very presence of God. And this incense, just like the anointing oil, was to be absolutely distinctive. It was to be most holy, verse 36. It was the only incense to be made in this way. And it was made exclusively for God to be treated as holy. And whoever made an incense like this incense, for their own personal use, was also in the risk of being, what, cut off. So again, this is very, very important. You picture the pleasing aroma of the incense rising up and filling the tabernacle of worship. Incense has this, this, uh, this uh, unique ability, if you will, to to not just mask other odors, but actually to uh, um, break down odors in the air. It, it's just very unique that way. Okay, It's not like the glade thing that just covers them over. You know, you plug it into the wall. But you, you picture the whole tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting, filled with this fragrant aroma. And it pictured the believer's prayers ascending to God. But not only that, the fragrance was a testimony to God being pleased with the prayers of His people. It's a fragrant aroma. God was pleased with the prayers of His people. He received them. He accepted them. And he would answer them. Isn't that marvelous? Most of the time, I think we pray with praying unbelief. We pray and we say, "Well, God, I, I don't know if you're going to do this or not." If you're pursuing seriously spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, spiritual well-being, spiritual health, you're, part of this is prayer—prayer prayer in belief. You have to envision your prayers like a pleasing fragrance arising to God. That was the picture that the incense was meant to convey. Do you remember hearing, God hearing the prayer of Gideon? Who, who, knows, who knows about Gideon, the book of Judges? What was Gideon famous for? Fleecing God. <laughs> I don't recommend fleecing God. But Gideon does, and God does. God answers his prayer. Judges chapter 6, listen to this. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. Oh, man. Just, is that cool? Do you remember God hearing the prayer of Hannah for Samuel chapter 1? Hannah said, I prayed for this child, Samuel, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. Wow, don't you love that? You remember God hearing the prayer of Samuel as he grew up, became one of the greatest prophets that Israel would ever know. First Samuel, chapter seven. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Isn't that a marvelous picture? God. Here's a priest, Samuel, called, anointed by God. Gave his life. Called out to God. God said, okay, blows thunder. Cool. That's cool. Remember God hearing the prayer of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 9. Solomon had built a temple for God in Jerusalem and, and had asked God to dwell in it. The Lord said to him, I've heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Oh, wow. God, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Now, if those are just empty words, don't expect to be filled. But if that's the cry of your heart... Expect that God will not only hear that prayer, but be pleased with it and he will answer it. He will fill you with his spirit. Remember God hearing the prayer of Elijah. And Elijah was preparing to battle the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. That's cool. That's fire. That's pretty good fire. God answers. He answers. Man, there's no mistaking. This wasn't just a coincidence. Clearly, it was God. People go, did you see that? Burned up the rocks. Remember God hearing the prayer of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was under attack. Israel was under attack by Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians. They were fierce, fierce people. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all nations on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And God answered that prayer and delivered them from the hands of Sennacherib. Remember God hearing the prayer of Jehoshaphat. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, this is the king of Israel, so they turned to attack him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew, drew them away from him. Remember God hearing the prayer of Ezra. Ezra chapter 8. So we, fastened, we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Remember God hearing the prayer of Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, Luke chapter 1. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Remember God hearing the prayers of the disciples and the early believers, Acts chapter 4. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and spoke the word of God boldly. Remember God's promise to all of us. Psalm 91, 15. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And then I love this, Isaiah 65, 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. Ooh, I love that one. Remember God's promise to those who ask in Christ's name. John chapter 16, now until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. What do I ask for? I ask for God's will. I ask God, give me the things that you want me to have. Open doors for me that you want open. Lord, Do these things, because my joy is only going to be complete in in His will being fulfilled. My joy is not going to be complete in getting what I want. God, give me a pink Cadillac. (laughs) Pretty soon the joy in the pink Cadillac is going to be gone, isn't it? Your joy will be complete. Why? Because He's going to do what His will is. And you want His will. His will is the very best. Remember God's promise to those who abide... Those who remain in him, John chapter 15, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. It means basically you're just going to be asking clearly what he's demonstrated and showed you what to ask for. And lastly, remember God's promise to those who persevere in prayer. Perseverance in prayer is so important. So I say to you, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Beloved, if you are to experience spiritual health, spiritual well-being, spiritual maturity, and that's what we should be aspiring to, it would involve these four simple dynamics. One, a commitment to giving. A commitment to purity. A commitment to serve. And a commitment to prayer. Shall we grow together? Shall we aspire to spiritual maturity? Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the insights that you give us as we come to your table. We ask you, Lord, to just... Settle these things in our minds and hearts. Indeed, that we become more like you, that we grow, mature spiritually, that you be glorified. You are worthy of our best worship. That we worship you with every aspect of our life. Thank you for being our God. We love you this morning. Amen. Amen. The the servers are going to pass the communion trays. If you're visiting with us and you are a Christian,